Good morning, everyone. Uh, for some of you who might not know me, my name is DJ, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege uh, of getting to share with you this morning. Uh, and, and I've gotten the privilege to share with you the last three weeks. Matt, let me do it three weeks in a row for some reason. And yeah. We've been going through this series that I, I called I Do. I Do? Question, question mark? Uh, on the topic of marriage and the family of God. And let me, let me just share with you a little insight for me. I, I picked the topic, okay? Someone said, oh man, Matt gave you a hard one. No, I picked it. <laughs> and, and I was like, man, we don't, I don't think we talk about some of these things enough. And uh, so I was excited. And then let me tell you, every single week, Come like Saturday night, I'm like, why did I pick? I, I shouldn't have picked this topic. I should have gone with something easier, uh, you know, less, less like, you know, ruffled feathers potentially or landmines around there. I, I should have gone with something easier. But here we are, third week. Uh, my hope this week is to, is to bring it home, okay? To not answer all of your questions, of course, because one, I can't do that. Uh, but on some level to continue this idea that we've been looking at, of, of, of marriage, what the Bible has to say about marriage, and what that means uh, for all of us, not just those who are married, but those who are single, uh, and how we are to work together. So let me give you a little bit of a, a recap so far. So it's only been three weeks, but I know you guys have lives outside of church, and some of you uh, might not have been paying attention. And so here's just a chance to, to give you some recaps so you're all caught up. Uh, the first week, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at God creating humankind in his image, male and female, he created them. Uh, and, and a question I was asking is, is what, what do we look to for fulfillment in life? What do we look to to complete us, to find some level of satisfaction and meeting? And the, the thing I wanted to challenge that first week was that often we look to marriage to complete us. We look to the physical aspect of marriage, the coming together of two people, as this thing that is like you are missing out on life if you are not doing this. We, we have in many ways elevated the physical parts of marriage. We have also elevated, I noted, the, the companionship piece of marriage. And often we look to our spouse or significant other as like this person who should complete me. Uh, who should be my other half, this person who should be my all and my everything, and I should find satisfaction in this person. And what I tried to point out is that both of those are, are not at all what the Bible talks about with marriage. None of those are ever promised to fulfill us or give us any type of, of satisfaction or completeness. And instead, that first week, I tried to point out that marriage serves in the Bible as a symbol and a metaphor for God's relationship to his people. Uh, God's people are the bride. God is, is, is the husband or, or the groom. And, and our only sense of completeness or satisfaction can only be found in that relationship first and foremost. That was week one. Week two, which was last week, we shifted from the Old Testament and went to the New Testament. And what I tried to do here is show that Jesus continues this idea that marriage is not this thing where you will find ultimate satisfaction or completeness. And, and even in the resurrection, when we're with God, uh, marriage isn't even there. Uh, so when we are eventually made whole in the presence of God and in the resurrection, marriage isn't even part of the equation. Uh, and so we should stop looking to it to fulfill all these needs. 
We looked at Matthew 19, where Jesus pointed out that marriage is actually a calling from God. Uh, And similarly, not only is marriage a calling from God, but singleness is also a calling from God. Both, at least, would be equal callings. Uh, and, and in the church, I pointed out, we don't often think of singleness as an equal calling to marriage. We, we focus on marriage, and singleness becomes the default, or the, the, the unfortunate, I didn't get married, so I ha- I'm stuck with this lesser option. And what I tried to point out is that the Bible does not say that. Uh, the Bible never portrays singleness as less than, and actually the Apostle Paul says he prefers it. He prefers that his followers were single. He prefers that they would stay unmarried as he was, stay unmarried as Jesus was. And his reasoning for this is that they can serve God with undivided loyalty. And so I tried to point out that marriage and singleness alike are not about us at all. They are not about looking inward. They're not about satisfying our needs or our desires or our lack of completeness, but they are about turning the focus towards the other person, uh, shifting the focus out in a radical love towards the other. And this week, we're going to continue on that theme. And what I want to look at is the idea that marriage actually serves, uh, and the way God uses it throughout Scripture is, is marriage ends up being this way that God actually furthers his kingdom. Um, and it, be, it becomes this tool, and we see in the laws that God created that, that marriage uh, is very much something that is, that is about God's kingdom first and foremost. And so I'm going to take us on a little tour of that and see how we might, not, might apply it to our lives. But let's begin with a word of prayer before I take you on this journey. Whew. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning the chance to wrestle with a topic that is near and dear to people's hearts, uh, a topic that can be sensitive for many. And I just pray that you would reveal your truth to us this morning. God, that we would be your children, your sons and your daughters. Focus our hearts on you this morning, Lord. Amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you actually on a little bit of a tour back through the passages we've already looked at uh, and point out some of the themes we can find. And so we're going to start at the beginning of the Bible. We're going to start back in Genesis 1, uh, and I want to look back at this call that God gives to the first humans. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. From the very beginning of scripture, we see that God's call on humanity and God's call specifically to the man and woman were to be like co-rulers with God. We're to, be, were to be ones who were fruitful, they increased in number, they filled the earth to subdue it, and they ruled over the fish of the sea, they ruled over the animals, and they ruled alongside God. And there was this harmony in the beginning. There was this, 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 
this closeness and this intimacy of God and God's people living together. And those of you who know the story know that very quickly we ruined uh, that intimacy uh, and we ruined that closeness with God by seeking our own uh, desires, by seeking our own authority, by seeking to know more than God uh, wished for us. And what we see is that there was a separation, okay? And I, I mentioned this in the first week that this, this same word for separation is very similar to the word used for divorce, that in the very beginning, there was this tight intimacy with God and there was a split, there was a divorce. And all throughout scripture, we see God Regathering his people to himself. The entire narrative of scripture is the story of God bringing his people back to himself. And it culminates going all the way to the book of Revelation. Listen to this uh, passage and see how it, it fulfills some of those things. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Beginning of Genesis, you have this union of God and his people. You have a separation and then at the very end, you have the coming back together of God and his people. And the entire narrative of scripture is God working out this future kingdom uh, and, and making it happen, using, uh, using ordinary people like you and me. He calls Abram uh, in the Old Testament. He uses, Abram, he uses Isaac and Jacob. He uses the offspring of these people to form the nation of Israel. And God comes down to the nation of Israel and he basically says those same words that we read in Revelation, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this nation of Israel was given rules. They were given laws to live by. And one of the things that this nation of Israel was supposed to be was supposed to be this, this image, this community that, that was even just a shadow of what the future heavenly community was supposed to be. They were to be a community where God was their king, where God was the one who ruled them, where God was the one who sustained them. And it was supposed to be like this future heavenly community. Stay with me. What does this all have to do with marriage? This future community was supposed to be an image of, of the future kingdom of heaven. And what we see throughout the Old Testament uh, and what we see even going into the New Testament is that God often used marriage. He often uses it as something that brings about his kingdom. He uses marriage as, as something that, that furthers this cause of becoming a great nation, this promise he gives to Abraham. You can see it in the laws that he gives to Israel, and then you can see it as he gives this promise of this future kingdom. Stay with me, I'm gonna make this case, okay? Cutter Calloway, who's a guy I've been quoting these last three weeks, he's a professor at Fuller Seminary, uh, describes this kingdom 
connection to kingdom and marriage like this. He says, especially within evangelical circles, that would be us, in an evangelical circle, we tend to see marriage as an ideal solution to an unrelated problem, such as the problem of feeling incomplete without one's soulmate or the problem of sexual angst. Or we see it as a reward for those who are able to maintain some semblance of sexual integrity while single. Or we see it as mutually beneficial agreement between two parties that generate some sense of individual satisfaction and personal fulfillment. He says, but that's not how we're supposed to see it. He says, from Jesus's perspective and the rest of the biblical witness, marriage isn't a contract. It's first and foremost a calling. Rather than an institution, it's an invitation. And as such, marriage isn't a means of self-actualization or self-gratification. It's not a reward for religious fervor or the culmination of one's life journey. He says, instead, marriage is a kingdom event, one in which we are routinely summoned to surrender ourself for the sake of the other. Marriage is a kingdom event. I am willing to bet, or at least admit, that when I was seeking to marry my now wife, I not once thought of our marriage as something that would further necessarily the kingdom of God or bring about the kingdom of God or something that God could use for the kingdom of God. I thought I like this person, we have a lot in common and uh, I wanna spend the rest of my life with this person. But what we see is that the Bible, there's so much more. And, And so I wanna look at a couple ways in which the Bible calls out the ways we are to live our lives with this idea of marriage in mind, okay? And the first is this. Marriage should be seen as a call to justice. What? Marriage, we see in the Bible, is a call to justice. Let me give you some some examples. We looked at Matthew 22 when the Sadducees go to question Jesus about marriage, and they say, There was no resurrection, and they say, Teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. And they go on to talk about, well, if that brother died and the next brother died and the next brother died, what, you know, who is this person going to be married to in the resurrection? And what they are referencing is a passage, Deuteronomy 25.5. This is from the Old Testament when Moses was giving the law to the nation of Israel. And in this law, it was said that if your brother uh, has a wife and your brother dies, you were to take his wife as your wife, which I said this last week and I kind of just brushed by it really quickly. It sounds like, gosh, that sounds terrible for the woman. What does she want? You know, what, what about romance? And what if there's no connection? I want you to see that that the laws of the Old Testament, uh, that these laws regarding who gets married and who should get married to whom and why a brother would possibly take on his, his his dead brother's spouse, is that the law was there to make sure a more just and equitable life. It was there to make sure there was a more just and equitable life for those who might have otherwise been oppressed. And in that day and age, for a widow to lose her husband was something that it, 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 it was something about losing everything. And so we see this, this law and number of laws in the Old Testament come into place where, where the call to marry says nothing about romantic love. It says nothing about feelings for someone else. It says nothing about someone being gratified or about someone growing in themselves what we see is that these laws were often there uh, as laws of justice. 
Let me give you another example, if you're not on board yet. The book of Ruth. Book of Ruth is a beautiful book in the Old Testament. It's four chapters long. You can go read it after this. You can knock it out in one sitting. It's in the Old Testament. Joshua judges Ruth. And in this book, we hear a story uh, about a woman named Ruth uh, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth was married to Naomi's son, and he died. And so now Ruth was on her own, and at the same time, Naomi was on her own. And so this story is of these two women who are on their own, trying to figure out where to go, what to do, and they decide to stick together. And what Ruth does is she does uh, what they were to do at that time. She goes in the fields, and she gleans behind the people. She does these things, and it says that there's a guy named Boaz who notices her. We love to over-romanticize Boaz and Ruth. Nowhere in here does it talk about them having a connection. There's not like a meet cute like there are in all the movies where they, they realize that they, they were drawn to each other from the very beginning. What we see is that the entire discussion about them getting together has to do with a law found in the Old Testament because Boaz was actually a, a, a relative of Ruth's and he would have been like the next in line and it would have been his responsibility to marry uh, Ruth so that the land and the name could stay in the family. And I wanna, I wanna read just a portion of this to you in chapter four, uh, in verse nine. Listen, listen to this. And, and I want you to think about the weddings you've been to and hear if you've heard anything like this. Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. Those are uh, the dead sons and father. It says, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife. Because I love her? Because we were compatible? No. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Have any of you heard that vow at a wedding ceremony before? I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife so that the name of the dead would not depart from this property and so it will not disappear from among the family in this hometown. Nobody does that nowadays. But I'm trying to point out that what we see in this Old Testament, that these laws were there as a way of promoting justice, as a way of protecting the women in this society, and as a way of continuing this purpose uh, for which God had called the nation of Israel. And if you know about the story of Ruth, we actually see that she has a child whose name is Obed, and he has a child whose name is Jesse, and Jesse has a son whose name is David. We actually see that what God had done in this bringing together of Ruth and Boaz, not for romantic reasons, not for anything special, but because the law was in place, is he actually uses this coming together of Ruth and Boaz and actually uses this, this offspring in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We see it over and over again, the coming together of two people and God using their offspring to fulfill the promises that he made from the very beginning. And so what does this have to do with marriage today? Okay, what do we do? We don't have these laws. It's not the same. I want you to think about this. On a concrete level, this is from Cutter Calloway. On a concrete level, this means that a Christian call to marriage demands a response from God's people that is constant with God's project in the world. Our, our call to marriage should be in line with God's projects and what God is doing in the world. 
It says, even and perhaps, especially in the process of identifying our prospective spouses. He says, for example, what would it look like for a single Christian to abandon their ideal spouse checklist? Those of you who are saying, you got the checklist, the person you're looking for, this is the ideal person out there. What would it look like to abandon that checklist and instead seek out a partner who would enable you to respond to the call of injustice in ways that might otherwise be inaccessible? Let me put it another way. What if the chief criteria for a future spouse were not sexual chemistry, it was not a common set of personal interests or hobbies, it was not emotional compatibility, but what if it was a capacity and a willingness to collaborate in a lifelong project of caring for the outsider and the marginalized and the oppressed? What I'm trying to describe to you here is that this call to justice is something that is a call for all of the people of God. We are to be on the lookout and to care for those who are on the outside. And what I want to try to make the case to you today is that in marriage, that call is no different. That in marriage, that call to justice, that call for living for the outsider is exactly the same as it would be if we are single. The call is the same for all of us. The situation or the context might be a little different. A modern example that I can think of uh, for this, and this is just because it is on my mind, and actually my wife and I are kind of smack dab in the middle of it, is, is an, a, a population that we have seen and had a heart for that we believe is on the margins of society are those who are in the foster care system. Uh, nowadays, those who are on the margins in our society look a little different than those who are on the margins in Jesus's day. But what we see is that there is still a large population of those who do not have a home, of those who are bounced from family to family, of kids who are not told that they are loved, who feel no sense uh, that they are loved by anybody or let alone a God. And, and what I want to say is that there is a call, especially on the people of God, and especially on those of us who are married, to care for populations like this. When Sam and I got married, this was not on the floor. This wasn't why we got married. Um, and I actually have a lot of credit to give to my wife because I think she brought up foster care like on date number one. Um, she learned my name. She learned what I liked and asked me about foster care because I think it would have been a deal breaker uh, if it was no. And she brought it up very quickly. And what we have seen in the midst of, of the process of fostering is that it is so dehumanizing for those in the system, that kids are passed around, that they are numbers, that there are people who are overworked, underpaid, under-resourced, and, and there are kids in this, this population that are just suffering in the midst of it. And there are stats out there that are crazy that say if every church in the country took in one, that we'd cover it, that every single one of those kids would have a home. And, and what I want to propose to you is that you know, we, we don't often think when we are finding a spouse, we don't often think in this call to live out God's uh, kingdom in our lives, we don't often think of this call to justice, but it's there for every single one of us. And what I want to tell you is those of you who are married, those of you who are thinking about getting married, even those of you who are single, all of you, that same exact call is on every single one of our lives. And the call to marriage is no different. What would it look like to pursue justice together? Another thing we see in God's kingdom is we also see that marriage is a call to generosity. 
All throughout scripture, we get this idea of the early church. Uh, in Acts 2, we get this vision of the early church where they, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Um, verse 33, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The early church was marked by, by this sense of generosity. In the Old Testament, you get laws to, if a brother or sister asks of you, do not withhold giving something to them. Uh, that these are ways, again, that were to mark the nation of Israel, that were to distinguish them as a people. And again, they were to, to be about ways that the, the nation of Israel furthered God's mission in bringing about his kingdom. We read a passage last week in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about husbands and wives. And I want you to see how this call, uh, there, is, there is elements of generosity in here. For 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Even in the calling of marriage, there is this this. this this call on all of us to give of ourselves to the other person. There is this call to give up yourself, to give up your desires, to give up what you want and instead give to the other person. Uh, and it's not just about you giving to a spouse, it's about you coming together with a spouse so that you might give to those around you. This call to be generous is all throughout the scripture. And, and to use an analogy that's often used at weddings or in, in some therapy sessions, you know, marriage, is, it's not a 50-50 a commitment. It is a 100-100 commitment. You are giving of everything you have to the other person. And so again, what I want us to think about is in this call of marriage and in this call of singleness, as the people of God, we all have this call to be generous. But specifically in the call of marriage, and, and I'm saying this because we don't think about these things very often, we are called to pursue justice and we are called to pursue things like generosity. The call is there for every single one of us. Let's look at a third way. And that's marriage as a call to forgiveness. Colossians 3, Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. God's people were to be marked uh, by an attitude of reconciliation, uh, of not someone being wronged and then just writing that person off or kicking them out, but it was to be a society that, that served to forgive one another and to build back relationships. Jesus says it in Matthew 18. It says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister? These are fellow believers, my brother or sister who sins against me. Up to seven times? And Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or some translations, 70 times, seven times. Keep forgiving. If this person asks for forgiveness, you keep forgiving. This is not to say that forgiveness is something where you just forget about what something happened. We can go into how we forgive and what it takes to forgive, and we can go into what it looks like to actually reconcile a relationship, what it looks like to repent of what happened, what it looks like to repay or, or, or build back something that was lost, what it looks like to do all these things. 
But what I want to uh, pitch to you is that, is that in the call of marriage, uh, and any of you who are married know this, you will have the opportunity, you have had the opportunity to live this out constantly. You, in the call of marriage, have this ability to, to, to live out this call to forgive. Cutter Calloway again, if the call to marriage is in fact a call to forgive, then it has nothing to do with becoming our best self or helping someone else become a better version of themselves. It is an invitation to love someone who neither now nor ever will deserve our love. This means that one of the reasons why Christians should get married is that in and through marriage, they are provided with an opportunity to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven times. As the people of God, we should be acting in such a way towards our brothers and sisters, and especially in the call of marriage, uh, to pursue things like justice, to pursue things like generosity, to pursue things like forgiveness. My wife and I have had a number of years of practicing this forgiveness. I think we're getting better at it, but I want to give you an example of a way that we, probably one of the ways we've fought the most uh, in our relationship. When she is stressed or anxious or feeling overwhelmed, Sam goes into go mode. She likes to make a list. She likes to make a checklist. She likes to take control. She likes to go, what do we need to do? What needs to happen? How do we get out of this rut? When I am stressed and anxious, I like to shut down and I like to hide in a little hole and I don't want to talk to anybody. And when we're both stressed or anxious, her list and her control makes me go even further into my hole. And me going into my hole makes her even more anxious and makes her want to do more lists and tries to figure out what the heck is wrong with him. Why isn't he trying to figure this out? How do we do this? I think most of our fights have been about this difference. And over the course of our marriage, we have had to slowly but surely, through conversation, through forgiving of one another, work from our extremes of me wanting to bury into a hole for a week uh, and slowly edge towards her uh, and to build back that reconciliation. She knows that when I am stressed, I, one of my, the things I'm working on, I'm still working on this, is to say, I'm feeling really anxious right now and I need about 30 minutes. Give, give me some time to sit with it and then we'll talk. And as long as she knows, okay, we're gonna talk about it in a little bit, I'll make my list, but I'll give them about 30 minutes. As long as she knows we have a time coming up that we can talk, it's been better. But I'm, I'm using this illustration to say that like, in a marriage relationship and in any relationship, you are going to be called to forgive one another. And what I hope that you do in working through this, you are going to, to slowly but surely be reconciling this and building back the relationship that might be torn apart in a moment of anxiety, in a moment of stress, or, or something that happens. And so in all of this, I mean, not just all of this in this sermon, but I mean, in all of this whole series, one of the things I've tried to do is, is try to give you some questions uh, to ask yourself uh, about marriage uh, and about singleness. I, I have tried to give you at least some sense of notice that every single one of us has a pair of glasses through which we see the world. And many of us have been shaped by the culture around us to think of marriage as one thing. It is about two people coming together who love each other. 
And, and yes, it's difficult, but it's something that's good and it's something that can bring about meaning and satisfaction. And what I wanted to do in this entire series is try to express to you that if you look at the Bible, I said this at the very beginning of our first one, we should look at the Bible first. If we look at what scripture says about what God is trying to do, about what God is working towards, about how God created us and about how God created marriage to function in this world that he created, then we need to look at some of the examples. We need to look at the ways in which God has not elevated the physical aspects of marriage. He has not elevated uh, the companionship that comes with marriage above any other relationship. He has not elevated marriage above singleness. And he has not given those of us who are called to marriage, he has not given us an out or, or, or some other calling then is, what, then is what, what's given to the rest of the community. It is to pursue justice. It is to love mercy. It is to walk humbly with our God. And one of the things I, I, I hope to have done throughout this is to get you thinking, what would it look like to pursue these things in my relationships? What does it look like to not be focused on my needs but to focus on the other person's needs? What does it look like to not focus on us being you know, better people that we can be, but what does it look like to focus on what God is doing in, in this grand narrative and story that he is crafting? What does it look like for us to see our marriages and our singleness as, as callings from God, callings in which we are, are participants in the kingdom work that God is doing, whether it is marriage or singleness, all of us have been called by God. Every single one of us is called to pursue things like justice, to pursue things like generosity amongst brothers and sisters. And we are called as brothers and sisters to forgive. And a way to summarize every single one of these things is simply what Jesus says is we are called to love one another. And what I have hoped to try to do is to give some at least practical examples or give some words to what it might look like for every single one of us to turn the focus off of ourselves and to radically focus on loving those around us. And so with that in mind, I hope I've given you a lot to think about, but I want to just wrap it in prayer, if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you for the gift of singleness. We thank you for the gift of marriage. And we thank you for the opportunities that we have to wrestle with your word and to see ways in which we maybe have let the world's definitions overtake us. I pray that every single one of us in here, those who are single and those who are married, would recognize that we are all called to be workers for your kingdom, that we are called to seek first your kingdom. And in doing that, we are called to seek justice for those around us, those who are on the margins and those who are oppressed. We are called to be generous to one another and we are called to forgive one another. And we are called to do that both inside marriage and outside marriage. And I pray for all of the spouses out there, I pray that this would begin conversations. How might we further your kingdom? How might we join in the work that you are doing? So God, thank you for this time. I pray that you would stir each and every one of our hearts and that you would draw every single one of us closer together as your sons and daughters, uh, as sisters and brothers in Christ. 
uh, and that we might truly live out what it looks like uh, to be uh, the bride of Christ as you describe. And we pray these things in your name. Thank you all for joining us uh, in worship uh, this morning. And just a couple of things uh, to remind you about. At four o'clock today at Ed Levin Park, uh, not, don't take a left to go to Ed Levin Park. Keep going and it's on the right-hand side. Uh, four o'clock to eight o'clock, we'll have our church picnic. It's gonna be a lot of fun and games and barbecue and food and it's gonna be great. So please, please, please join us. Even if you have an RSVP, come. Uh, we'll have room for you. Uh, just a reminder for those also who are a part of the class, uh, the marriage class happening after the service, we're still in the social hall. Uh, and so we'll be in there uh, following this uh, following the service. Would you all stand and receive this benediction? We are all part of a greater story. We are all uh, key players in, in, in a grand story that started with God and is going to end with God. And my hope and my prayer for every single one of us as a church, individually, those who are married, those who are single, is that we would recognize that we have a part to play in this kingdom that God is bringing to earth someday, that we are called to be his hands and feet. We are called to be people who seek justice. We are called to be people who are generous towards one another, and we are called to be people who seek forgiveness in all things. And I pray that our lives as we go from here would be marked by that, that others would see the love we have for one another and praise our Father in heaven. Go in peace. <laughs>